Welcome to episode three, which is factors affecting performance for the New South Wales HSC's PDHPE syllabus. Um, in this one, we're going to be covering all of the focus questions for factors affecting performance. And we're obviously going to start with focus question one. So focus question one, how does training affect performance? Now in this, there's four dot points that we need to know. And that includes the first dot point of energy systems, the second dot point of types of training and training methods, the third dot point, which is principles of training, and our fourth dot point, physiological adaptations in response to training. Okay, guys, so we're looking at the first dot point for focus question one, and um, the dot point is energy systems. There are three sub points to this, which is the lactic acid system or ATPPC, the lactic acid system, and the aerobic system. Now, our learn two says that we need to analyze each energy system by exploring the following. So the source of fuel, efficiency of ATP production, duration that the system can operate, cause of fatigue and the byproducts of energy production and the process and rate of recovery. Now for this, we're just gonna have a bit of an overview of what the energy system is because you guys need to go into a lot of detail here. So it's something that you really need to have spent some time on. Let's firstly talk about the lactic acid system or the ATPPC. So firstly, it's important to understand what does ATP stand for? Now that stands for adenosine triphosphate, ATP. Um, you might be wondering what the PC stands for. So the PC is um, essentially creatine phosphate. Um, now the way it works is that you have your ATP, which is a basically a molecular bond um, or a chemical bond, which is adenosine. So one molecule of adenosine and three. So this is where the tri, so A, the T stands for tri or three phosphates. So three phosphates um, join onto that one adenosine. Now <clears throat> that gives us our molecule. So there's four in that molecule. What happens in the process when we're using ATPPC is that one of the phosphates actually breaks off and that produces the energy that we need. So by doing that, it then leaves adenosine diphosphate. So that means there's only two. So we have an adenosine molecule and only two phosphates. Now this, this would render this useless for creating more energy again. So what is needed is the creatine phosphate or the PC. That creatine phosphate brings back the third phosphate molecule to make the ATP system whole again with three phosphate molecules. Um, this generally takes a little bit of time to be able to do. So essentially when we look at how long the energy is um, and the duration of the system, the ATP PC system can only sort of create energy for about 10 seconds. Once that's occurred, it then takes approximately two minutes for the CP supplies to be resorbed, so your, your creatine phosphate or your PC, to make it whole again. So there's gotta be a two minute break. So when you're thinking about um, what kind of sports and, and whatnot, remember that it's only 10 seconds and then there needs to be quite a long break. 
I always talk about weightlifting, such um, you know, weightlifting events such as the clean and jerk and a snatch and things like that are really, really good examples here because they're under 10 seconds and then they have a long time to be able to replenish those stores before they act again. All right, let's move on to the lactic acid system. Okay, so the lactic acid system does use ATP in a sense, but realistically, um, we're now starting to use glycogen, which is basically the glucose stores or, or glucose um, in, in the body. So <clears throat> when we eat carbohydrates, they become glucose. Um, excess, excess glucose is then stored as glycogen in the muscles and our liver. Glycogen's that fuel that is used by the lactic acid system. Um, it's broken down without oxygen, and this is why both the ATPPC and the lactic acid system are both anaerobic, all right, because they're both done without oxygen. Um, now, the whole process that undertake, this undertakes is classified as anaerobic glycolysis. Um, now, this is where that glycogen again, um, it leads to the production of two ATP molecules and pyruvic acid. Um, Again, in the absence of oxygen, that pyruvic acid is then converted into lactic acid. All right, um, that is the byproduct of the system is lactic acid. That buildup it can cause issues in our performance. So, um, if you've ever done like um, a really long run, really hard, and you got really really sore, that muscle fatigue is because of what that buildup in lactic acid, that soreness that occurs. Um, look, with this, you need about two minutes to recover. Um, sorry, after about two minutes of actual exercise, unless oxygen becomes available to the system, um, that, that's sort of where it ends. Now, um, again, this energy system is probably the one, so going from about 10, 10 seconds on to about two to three minutes. Um, once we get that past that stage, oxygen will become available and then we will convert over into our final energy system, which is our aerobic system. Now, as you probably picked up, the aerobic system is done in the presence of oxygen. All right, so we need oxygen to be able to, to, to um, work and, and do what we need to do. This is where it gets really interesting. So because oxygen is present, um, pyruvic acid is not resynthesized into lactic acid. So that's because the oxygen is there. However, it's broken down into what we call carbon dioxide, water, and then 36 ATP molecules. So therefore, the aerobic system has 38 ATP molecules, and it's the most efficient energy system. And this is why our body uses this for really long activities. All right, so anything generally over three minutes is going to operate with that. Now, obviously, when we're talking about this energy system, it taps into to different parts. So it um, it really does want to use the glycogen stores uh, again, and it does want that glucose from carbohydrates. Um, it will also burn fat as the secondary source of fuel. Um, and then obviously past that, it will start to look for protein as a fuel source if it's really beyond. So if we're talking like ultra marathons and things like that, which are really, really long sort of events. Um, 
The downside to this is that our glycogen stores can be replenished, but it takes about 10 hours or so. Um, so, and you really need to be resting. So for a, a, a decent amount of period um, there, so that happens and that occurs. All right, I hope, um, I, I, look, I know I haven't covered absolutely everything in the Learn 2 here. There is a lot to go through, so I want you guys to go over and look over this yourself, but this gives you quite an extensive overview for energy systems. Okay, so we're moving on to the second dot point for focus question one. This is types of training and training methods. So our, we have four sub points in this section and they are aerobic with the examples being continuous, fartlek, aerobic interval and circuit. The second sub point is anaerobic, e.g. anaerobic interval. The third is flexibility, which talks about static, ballistic, PNF, and dynamic and finally the fourth sub point is strength training free and fixed weights elastic and hydraulic so let's start with aerobic example is the first one is continuous training now aerobic you would have should have picked up on is that this involves oxygen this involves um, making sure we're moving at a very fast level so that we're tapping into that aerobic system and we're breathing heavy so Continuous training is where a training session or is a period of that is continuous effort, all right? So not stopping and starting. So we're, we're continuing to go the entire time for a minimum, all right, of 30 minutes. Um, this is for the aerobic improvements to actually occur in the body. All right, within that, the athlete needs to make sure that the intensity that they're working with is within is in the aerobic training zone. This generally is 70 to 90% of the maximum heart rate. Um, so an example of continuous training would be things like going for a, a jog for over 30 minutes, um, cycling, swimming, um, even, even things like power walking. So these are all continuous. They're things that you can do for a long period of time, which is going to tap into that, that, um, that oxygen system at that level, the heart rate, and make sure that we need to do it for that duration. Um, look, fartlek training is the next one. Fartlek is Swedish, and um, the actual word fartlek stands for uh, speed play in Swedish. Um, now, fartlek training is essentially it's it's intense work followed by a, um, a, a not a break but a decrease in effort so um, it is something where you might be going for a jog for example um, and you might be doing it around a football oval and what you might set as the goal is is that you will jog for the sidelines and then when you get to the corner behind the goal, the try line or the goal line, you'll sprint to the other end. Once you get to that end corner, you'll then jog slowly again up the sideline and then sprint again. So it's it's on, off, on, off, on, off with our, our speed. Um, this is important to understand because it's different to interval training, which we'll talk about in a second but there's no stopping involved in this. There's only a decrease in the amount of effort, all right? Um, it's a really good 
way of training um, to obviously, it, it's sort of the in-between from continuous to interval training. So um, for, for people that are starting out, uh, especially if you're, if you're starting out as, um, and you haven't done sort of exercise in a while, you're not probably gonna be able to just go and run for 45 minutes at a, at a, a decent speed. So this one here um, is probably the progression and it might be from interval. We'll talk about interval in a second, but this one here is slow, fast, slow, fast. So it's going to increase and challenge the athlete with their aerobic and their anaerobic system too, especially if they're sprinting really quick too. So it, it's tapping into a bit of both, which is fantastic. All right, our next sub point, um, oh, sorry, our next type in, in is aerobic interval. So this is, when we talk about interval training, this is where we have um, our, our effort and um, then offset with a period of rest or recovery. So an example of this is you might have an athlete need to run um, five 100 meter sprints, all right? We're gonna make them do that at 80% of their max, as, as, you know, 80 to 100% of their max. And then between each of these five sprints, you're going to give them a two minute recovery period. Um, basically what this is doing is we're going to be targeting the anaerobic system, because right? they should be able to do that 100 meters in, in close to you know, the 10 second mark. And then we're gonna give them two minutes for that ATPPC system to replenish before we go again. Um, Again, interval training can be adapted, so it doesn't just have to be a 100-meter sprint. It can be multiple different things, but it has to be offset with a um, with a break period. Now, this is where, as I said, fartlek training is sort of the intermediary. So um, we go from an aerobic training into our fartlek into continuous. It's sort of that, that progression. All right, and then we also have um, circuit training as our, our last um, in, the, in this sub point for aerobic. Now circuit training is where an athlete has stations. Um, they'll go to a station generally for a set period of time and then they're gonna move on to the next station and they'll continue to do that to move their way around the circuit. Um, again, this could be done from an aerobic, it could be done with flexibility, it can be strength training as well. Um, when we're focusing, this dot point's focusing on aerobic. So when we're doing this, we're gonna probably spend a bit more time in that station and we might do things such as like skipping. Um, we might be running on a treadmill. We might then be jumping onto a rowing machine. We then might be on a stepping machine. These, and, and jumping back and forth from an aerobic standpoint. Um, again, this could be offset with actual weights. It could be offset with chin-ups. Um, so when he's thinking about circuit training, probably F45 and CrossFit are, are decent examples of this because they're tapping into that circuit sort of model. Okay, the next one we're gonna talk about is anaerobic training. Now, anaerobic training is without oxygen. So this means that it's gonna be high intensity activity for really short durations. Um, by increasing that intensity to that real high intensity level, athletes can improve their anaerobic threshold. So um, we really wanna be operating in the, the top end here. So we're talking like 85 to 90% of max heart rate. Um, this way they'll also build up a tolerance for that lactic acid, and that's gonna help when they're performing this type of training. Um, so, Interval training here can be adapted into basically focusing on anaerobic training. Um, it can be done 
for example, with 100 meter runs, all right, because again, um, we might make it a bit smaller, so we might go 50 meter runs. So they're really definitely only gonna tap into that ATP PC. And then they're gonna have that break. So they, you might extend the break. You might give them four minutes recovery um, so that that gives plenty of time to ensure that the ATP PC system has enough creatine phosphate to replenish that system and make sure they're ready to go again. Um, anaerobic interval training is, is definitely a really good way to go. But again, it's in you've got to make sure that it's without oxygen and you're providing enough time for that recovery period to occur. Our third sub point is flexibility training. And in flexibility training, we have four different types. So the first one is static stretching. Now this is where we hold a stretch. I always talk about static is still. <coughs> so if you think about static and still stretching, it's where you might stretch your calf muscle, um, which is nice and slow, you're doing it gently, and you're going to just hold that stretch and you're gonna, your body's gonna be like a statue. Um, Depending on the requirements of the sport, there'll be different specific stretches for that. Then we move to dynamic, all right? So dynamic is where we're doing range of motion or range of movement. Um, this, this is where we're, um, we're actually doing something. So instead of being stationary or still like static, we're moving. So it might be something as simple as doing butt kicks as we're running along or high knees. Um, that's warming up the muscle. Um, it's We're gonna start slowly and build up the speed of doing that. Um, it's also, but it's still getting us in ready to do that activity that we might be doing. Um, a really good example would be um, if you're thinking about swimmers, all right, they're gonna rotate their arms and shoulders and it might be just arm circles. So doing those, starting off slowly, building up a bit quicker, um, just to prepare the muscles for the action that they're going to be doing. The next one we have is PNF stretching, and this is classified as what we call proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation. And this is, um, look, this is probably the best way to increase flexibility, all right, because it has the, the best, like, I guess, the greatest benefits in improving that range of motion. Um, PNF is basically gentle, static stretch, followed by an isometric contraction against resistance. So an example of this would be you laying on your back, um, having a partner and you have having them stretch um, one leg, keeping one leg flat on the floor and one leg lifting straight in the air and that's stretching your hamstring muscle. Um, and they would hold that for the static stretch. And at the end of that, they would hold your heel and you would push your heel into their hand. Then you would then stretch again. So that's followed by that static stretch. This. Um, this is classified as PNF stretching and it's going to have the most flexibility gain for range of motion. And then finally, we have ballistic, all right? So ballistic stretching involves stretching a muscle to its end point and then overstretching it by bouncing. Look, it's, it's, it's very useful for some sports as it can closely imitate the speed of the movement required that they'll be the athlete will be going through in that that particular sport. Um, however, it's it needs to be done under very good supervision because for most sports it's unsuitable and it also can lead to intramuscular damage, which means that there's you know it could put an athlete out of playing their sport.
Okay, so our next dot point for focus question one is principles of training. And the sub points here are progressive overload, specificity, reversibility, variety, training thresholds, and warm up and cool down. Now, I always ask students to try and remember this by the um, sort of saying of VW sport. So V's variety, W warm up and cool down, sports, S is specificity, PO is progressive overload, R is reversibility, and T is training thresholds. Okay, so let's talk about progressive overload. It's exactly what it sounds like, overload. So progressive is moving forward, overload is we're loading something up and then we're giving it more. So a really easy way to remember progressive overload, whether it be from an aerobic or an anaerobic context, um, if we talk about aerobic, we're going to talk about running. So progressive overload might be that in the first week, an athlete will run for 10 minutes. The next week, they might run for 11 minutes. Next week, 12 minutes. Next week, 13 minutes, etc. That's one way of doing it by time. The other way we can do that is by intensity. Um, so we could go that um, in the first week, they're gonna run for 20 minutes at 60% intensity. In the second week, they're still gonna run for 20 minutes, but instead of that 60% um, intensity, you might up it to 65% intensity. And again, you're progressively overloading. So as we continue in that training program, we're going up with whatever we're focusing on, whether it be the time, the intensity, etc. This can also be done with weightlifting, all right? So when we talk about an anaerobic activity, we can talk about resistance training in the sense that um, in the first week, we might be doing bicep curls and we're doing 10 kilos, um, you know, and then we're going to add on to that. So the next time might be 11 kilos. Um, in week three, it might be 12 kilos, etc. Or we keep that 10 kilo weight and we do the repetitions. So we might change it. So originally we could only do six repetitions. In week two, we're gonna do seven or eight and we're gonna continue again. It's like a step um, as you go up through the steps. The next one is specificity. Now this is, I just want you to think about the, the root word here is, is specific, all right? So that's what it is. It's specific training for the sport that you are, your athlete is doing. So if we've got a, uh, a rugby league player, specific sort of aerobic activity for them is going to be looking at um, not just running for 40 minutes because that's not what rugby league's about. It's probably gonna be running 10 meters jogging back 10 meters, running forward 10 meters, maybe dropping on the ground like they're um, to imitate a tackle, getting back up, going backwards. Um, you can also look at things like the actual type of training, so like tackling, wrestling, things like that for rugby league. Um, so we're making it specific. Now that's from the aerobic context, so that running back and forth because we're still overloading them. From a weightlifting perspective, we're going to want strength and we're going to want power. So because obviously with with rugby league, you're going to be grabbing the individual and throwing them to the ground, and they're going to they're trying to stop you. So you need to have more power than that person. So that's our specific way, all right. And then when we'd be lifting those weights in resistance training, we would focus on how it occurs to actually develop strength um, and power. And we'll talk about that a little later on. The next one is reversibility. Now, reversibility is, is, again, let's look at that root word of reverse, going 
backwards. So the old saying, if you don't use it, you lose it is so true. And I want you to think about even your studying. If you stop studying, you forget things that you've learned. That's just, that's just natural. So when we talk about reversibility, reversibility is going backwards. And it means that when an athlete gets injured or stops training, um, that they're going to go backwards. So as we talked about progressive overload, that those weights would increase. If you had a four or five week break and then tried to grab the same weights that you were lifting five or six weeks ago, you're not going to be able to do it to the same level because that muscle mass would have had decreased. Then we have variety. Variety is really important. Um, you know, the saying variety is the spice of life so people don't get bored is, is quite true. If you do, I don't care what sport you love, if you did it every single day for two hours, you would get very bored of it and you'd get over it. So it's important that when we're doing training, we need to look at variety to keep athletes engaged in what they're doing. Um, this doesn't mean that we're going to just do things that are completely different. So we might look at um, cricket and AFL. AFL um, basically started up as a sport for cricket players who um, to do in the off season. So again, the reason being is that they're using their hand-eye coordination catching a ball. It might be a different shape ball, um, but it's still hand-eye coordination. It's a skill that's gonna be used in that sport. So we're talking about those transferable skills. Then we talk about training thresholds. So training thresholds is the bracket that occurs for you to either achieve or not achieve. Now, this is important to understand um, what you're trying to do because if you're training above the anaerobic, uh, sorry, below the anaerobic threshold, you're not improving anaerobically. If you're training above the aerobic, again, you're not improving aerobic as best possible. So it's mindful of that. And then warm up and cool down. Look, warm up is to make sure that our muscles are prepared and ready to go for activity. And cool down is about making sure that we bring them back down to the starting point so we minimize injury as best possible. Okay, so we're on the last dot point for focus question one, and it is physiological adaptations in response to training. So everything that we've talked about as to our training, how does that then impact our bodies? Now, we have six different sub points here. So we have the first being resting heart rate, the next stroke volume and cardiac output. The third is oxygen uptake and lung capacity. The fourth is hemoglobin level, fifth is muscle hypertrophy, and the last one is the effect on fast, slow twitch muscle fibers. So let's start by talking about our resting heart rate. So the more you do and the, the more improvements you make to your aerobic system, the better it is, and that also then means that your heart rate is better at doing its job. So the heart is a muscle, and just like any muscle, it can be strengthened. So when we talk about um, doing continuous, so say continuous training, our heart rate, our resting heart rate will decrease, all right? It will come down because as the heart gets stronger, it's, it, it, it can pump more blood easier, and we'll talk about that in the next subpoint. And that means that our resting heart rate, so when we're just relaxing, sitting down, you know, that it's going to be easily pumping the blood that we need because our body's made adaptations to deal with that amount of activity. 
So that's where we tie into stroke volume and cardiac output. So by training the muscle and making it stronger, when the muscle contracts, all right, so when we talk about, if you go back to year 11, talking about systole and diastole, when the muscle contracts, it squirts the blood around the body. The more forceful that contraction, the more blood that's pumped out. That's the stroke volume. So by strengthening our muscle by training, it actually increases the amount, the stroke volume, the amount that is pumped. Now, um, that also increases when we're at rest, which means that our resting heart rate, that's one of the reasons it decreases because more blood is being pumped with less heartbeats. Now let's look at cardiac output. The way we work out cardiac output is our stroke volume times the resting, uh, sorry, times our heart rate, all right? So how many mils um, and how many, um, how many mils we pump out of the heart and how many times the heart beat and that gives us our cardiac output. Um, this is also, as we sort of talked about, is this talk, This generally means that um, we are able to work out where we are from a training perspective. Um, it's also improves, so it increases in efficiency. So our stroke volume will increase and our cardiac output will also increase because we can now pump more um, and our heart is, it can run a little bit less, which means we can push it that little bit harder. So if we're running at 160 beats per minute and then we increase by five mil of how much we pump out, then it will actually up. So we can still have 160 beats per minute, but we're getting that five extra mil every single beat. That's gonna significantly increase. Now it might not be as much as that, but that's just the example for you. Um, we then talk about oxygen uptake and lung capacity. So oxygen uptake is the way the body deals with using that oxygen as it's sent around in the bloodstream and used. So we, we generally refer to this as like having maximal oxygen uptake is measured, and you've probably heard of this, of being your VO2 max. Um, now, what this means is, look, there's a few things that can impact this, um, you know, uh, hereditary, gender, your age, and, and also the training status. You can improve your VO2 max, um, generally by up to about 20%. Um, the VO2 max, like for basically an untrained athlete, we'd, we'd say is probably 40 to 45 mils per kilo per minute. Um, compared with someone who's an endurance athlete, and they would be about 60 to 80 mils per kilo per minute. Um, that's how much oxygen is being able to, like how much we can use that oxygen in the bloodstream to, to give to our muscles while it's working. Um, our lung capacity is how much oxygen the lungs can hold. Um, so look, we have four different ways or lung volumes that we can look at. Um, but realistically, what you need to know is this really can't change a great deal, um, if at all. And we're basically taking in the air, the air's then getting transferred into the circulatory system, gets transported around the body in the blood, and our muscles grab the oxygen, what they need. Um, the more oxygen we have available, the better and easier it is for our muscles to get that oxygen and, and to work. 
Um, this takes us to hemoglobin level. So hemoglobin is the substance in your red blood cells that binds to and then carries the oxygen around in the bloodstream. So when we train, we um, so aerobic training, so when we're, we're training, we increase our hemoglobin levels and this can go up to about 20%. This increase, okay, means that we're then got more um, more oxygen can be grabbed and taken around the body to be utilized. So again, that increase in hemoglobin is going to have positive effects on our training, um, have positive effects on our performance because we have more oxygen being transported, which means more fuel um, to help out those muscles. And finally, we talk about, um, sorry, there's muscle hypertrophy. Muscle hypertrophy is the growing in size, all right? So the increase of size on each muscle fiber. So a muscle's made up of a lot of different muscle fibers. When we do resistance training, um, we basically are tearing those muscles in a good way, um, and that muscle fiber then replenishes itself and um, grows. So um, by doing that, then each muscle fiber growing, then your hypertrophy is where the muscle will get bigger and swell up. And this is the main thing that bodybuilders want to sort of achieve. Um, look, it can take as long as two months of training for hypertrophy to actually begin. So it's not a quick process and it's important to know that as well. And finally, we talk about the effect on fast, slow twitch muscle fibers. Okay, so in our in our muscle, different fibers are either lend themselves to slow twitch or to fast twitch. Fast twitch muscle fibers, um, they require greater amounts of force for short periods. So they fatigue quicker, but they're um, sprinters, right? So if you think about a 100 meter sprinter, those elite sort of sprinters, they have like 80% fast twitch muscle fibers, and that's why they're so quick. Whereas slow twitch muscle fibers is, is the opposite. So marathon runners tend to have like 80% slow twitch muscle fibers and they can run for longer periods of time without fatiguing as well. So their muscles are, are more readily accepting of that activity. Um, now, both lend themselves to different sports, so it's important that you understand that. Um, now, realistically, when we train those into what they need to do, you're not gonna get massive changes in the difference of the, the fast or slow twitch muscle fibers. So a lot of it's genetic and you'll generally have that. There obviously are training. Um, so when we do hypertrophy and, and when we do strength training and things like that, it, it can increase their performance levels as well, which makes it easy. All right, does that make sense? I hope so. Um, and that covers this focus question altogether. Thank you. This brings us to focus question two, how can psychology affect performance? In this focus question, there are three dot points. The first is motivation, the second is anxiety and arousal, and the third is psychological strategies to enhance motivation and manage anxiety.
Okay, so let's look at our first dot point motivation. Now there's two sub points here. One is positive and negative, and the next one is intrinsic and extrinsic. So positive motivation is obviously things that make us feel good. So they're rewarding, they make us feel good about what we are. So someone giving us a compliment or us achieving um, what we set out to do. And this is what we classify as positive motivation. Now it can be both intrinsic and extrinsic and we'll touch on those in a moment. Obviously negative motivation is um, is also a form of motivation and it might be a punishment. So it might be um, that if you um, don't win the soccer game that you don't get something um, and or if you don't perform at this level you're going to have to do something that you dislike from a training perspective for the next training session. So that makes it negative. Now, when we look at intrinsic and extrinsic, intrinsic is internal, all right? So it's the easiest way to remember, intrinsic, internal, extrinsic, external. Internal motivation is what comes from within the athlete. Um, so it is the pressure or the motivation that they put on themselves, and it can be both positive and negative. Now, again, um, it might be if you score a goal that that person will have a cheat, an extra cheat day in their training, um, in their training routine or, or their nutrition. Um, it can also be negative as we just touched on before that if you don't get that, that you might make yourself um, lose a treat that you might eat or something along those lines. Extrinsic is from an external factor. Now that could be from um, a coach, it could be from parents, could be from teammates um, and the like. Now that could again be positive or negative. It could be the coach or, or your parents. Most often, um, you know, when young kids are playing sport, they say, if you score a goal, I'll take you to McDonald's after the game. That's positive extrinsic. Um, a negative version would be the opposite. So if you don't score a goal today, um, you're not allowed to, to watch TV tonight or something along those lines. So um, both are motivators. Now, individuals respond differently to different sources of motivation and different sports have different motivations too. So if we were compare, comparing something like golf versus boxing, all right, um, golf, you're, you're playing against yourself. So um, the way you would set out targets, um, it, it's gonna be a lot more intrinsic. You do would have a coach, but it, it's mainly gonna be within yourself. Whereas boxing, um, the motivation is going to generally, you have a team, they're gonna talk to you between rounds. So there's gonna be a little bit of difference between that as well. All right, our next dot point is anxiety and arousal. And we talk here about um, the different types. So the first dot point we're going to talk about is trait and state anxiety. So trait and state are different types of anxiety that, um, that someone might feel, okay? So trait anxiety is basically what someone lives with. So their general leveling anxiety. Some people are, more, are far more anxious than others. Um, so this is basically the everyday stresses and, and what that person sort of that, that level of their normal anxiety um, is, is ranging from that. State anxiety is situational. So it might be, for example, um, the pressure from playing in a grand final and you've got to make the winning penalty goal or, you know, a golfer who's, who's leading um, can win the whole tournament by putting at the 18th green. Um, it could be the basketballer has a free throw and everybody's watching and it, it could be the difference between putting their team in front or winning the game. So trait and state anxiety 
has an impact on performance because um, depending on the ability of that athlete to handle those pressure situations. Our next subpoint talks about sources of stress. And sources of stress, um, there's basically four different type or sources. We talk about social stresses. Um, this is basically events or people within someone's life. Um, some examples could be deadlines. So that stress you feel when you've got an assessment task that's due that maybe you haven't started and you've left it last minute. Um, could be a disagreement with a loved one that makes you sort of upset and you can't get it out of your mind. Um, could be um, pressure from your parents to, to do really well at school or, or whatever it might be. Um, also money problems, they're social stresses. Next one we could talk about is the environment. So the environment um, is obviously constantly changing and an individual has to adjust to that. So um, if you're playing sport, for example, you might be playing golf. Now the weather conditions can really impact golf. So um, if you're if it's a very windy day, that's obviously when you hit a ball at that great distance, it's going to move it with that. So it might put you in a position where you're not usually used to, um, and that could stress you out as well. It could also be noise. So um, if you've watched tennis and golf, they generally try and get the crowd to be really silent. Um, if you compare that with like sort of soccer or football games where the crowd's cheering and making all this noise, so that can be a distraction on the athlete as well. Now there's also physiological stresses. Um, this is the stress that's placed on your body. So it can be exercise induced, it could be injuries, um, it could be overload, it could be a lack of exercise, um, it can be you being sick. Um, all these different things can, are, are physiological. It can even be sleep disturbances. So um, when you feel really, really tired or um, because you haven't got enough sleep that day or you've got a really poor sleeping pattern that has a, a real negative impact on you. And finally, the last one is our psychological stresses. Now, this is basically when we have negative thoughts. Um, so if we, we're constantly thinking negative, it can increase our stress levels, but it also can produce poor results and low self-esteem. So, um, you know, for someone that looks at things from a positive perspective and go, oh, that's a challenge, you know, it, it gives me the opportunity to do my best and see if I can, what I can do. And then someone else going, oh my God, I can't do it. They're going to generally produce two totally different results from that. And we, we sort of talked about this in class and the saying, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? At the end of the day, the same amount of liquid is in, in that glass. It's just how you view it. All right, that's, um, that talks about anxiety and arousal and sources of stress. Now, last thing I'm gonna talk about is optimal uh, optimum arousal. This is where, depending on the sport, it's going to be the best spot for that athlete to perform at their best. We generally refer to what we call the inverted U hypothesis. And this is just an upside down U, all right? Um, with basically plotted on a, on a graph that has the left-hand side being performance and the bottom being arousal. So sometimes if an athlete is too aroused and they're too excited, their performance is gonna go down the bottom right of that U. Now, otherwise, if an athlete doesn't really care, their performance is gonna be on the left-hand side, but down the bottom of the U. So again, their performance is impacted. So what we really wanna do is make sure that the arousal is in the right range to make sure it's at the top of that U, so at the top of the mountain, essentially, so performance can be at its best. Now, some sports require more arousal and some sports require less. 
So if we think about boxing or something like mixed martial arts, where you're going out and you're going to get punched or kicked or choked, we probably want to have an athlete who's quite aroused, they're quite pumped up, ready to go to engage in that activity, as opposed to someone like archery shooters. All right, so if they're doing archery where if they're pumped up and adrenaline's going through their body and their, their hands are shaking, that's gonna have real detrimental effects on their ability to hit that um, target, and which means their performance is going to be decreased as well. All right, that brings us to the end of anxiety and arousal dot point. Now, our final dot point is looking at psychological strategies to enhance motivation and manage anxiety. All right, and this is really important because some really fantastic athletes have probably more skill than other athletes, but they're really poor in being able to manage that anxiety and enhance their motivation. And that generally will, again, mean their performance isn't as good. And if you think about sort of, um, I always like to think about like Nick Kyrgios. He's a brilliant, actually, technical tennis player. However, he does have an issue with being able, with his psychological strategies, with his ability to concentrate, his attention, um, with his ability to do the job. And he sort of gets into a headspace where he's arguing with different people, um, you know, attacking sort of spectators verbally and all these different things. So he's a really good example for me. So when we talk about the first sub point here is concentration and attention skills. This is the ability to focus, all right? Focus on appropriate cues for optimal performance. Um, now this, is where it could be, um, you know, a good example of this would be divers. We've just had the Olympics, um, the sport of diving is um, when the divers are on the platform and they jump, they actually listen, and same as gymnastics, they listen for a coach who might give them a, a verbal or an audio cue, such as a whistle, and that's when they know to start doing a specific part of their routine. Um, it's also the ability, and I know we looked at one going, um, you know, and it ties into a couple others, but um, we looked at like Jamie Soward on how he kicks a football so that he has a particular way of kicking it and he has a routine and he constantly just repeats that routine. So he's focusing on the steps of the routine, which minimizes those distractions. He can block them out and do, the, you know, do his cues of his routine and then hopefully have a successful um, attempt at kicking a conversion. All right, the next one we talk about is mental rehearsal visualization and imagery. So mental rehearsal is basically the ability to go through the competition routine to maximize performance. Um, it involves generally, we want the athlete to see, hear, feel, um, and experience that skill or whatever they're trying to achieve as if it was real. So um, we, we want this to be um, practice we want them thinking about this we want them if they're swimmers we want them thinking that they're in the pool that they're stretching out and they feel the water going between their fingers all these different things um, to do this we want them to be relaxed both mind and body um, the rehearsal's got to be realistic so it, it must be in like sort of real time it must be in like the, in a, a proper environment um, they must see themselves in this picture so we want them seeing themselves doing what they're their chosen sport. Um, it needs to be in color, as I said, the same speed, and we want it to be positive. Generally, this is going to be done 
um, probably like the, the night before or, or leading up to it, um, leading up to an activity. The next one we're going to talk about is visualization. Um, similar to mental rehearsal, um, it's going to be a way of ensuring that they they feel that it's realistic that they're they're smelling a swimmer might you know smell the chlorine of the pool. They're making a visual blueprint of what they're going to do, um, how, how they perform that skill. Again, we'll go back to Jamie Soward, um, who's you know you see them pause for a moment. He looks up at the he looks up at the the goalposts and he looks back down. He stares at the goalposts. He's envisioning, visualizing that kick to go over and do what he needs to do in regards to that element. Um, now, when we also talk about imagery, um, we're talking about the, the same thing. The visualization and imagery is going to be looking at making sure that they're looking at that image to essentially have, it's positive, it's setting them up to be successful in what they're doing. Well, the next one we're going to look at is the next sub point called relaxation techniques. And this is a way to de stress. We want, you know, if you think about the Olympics, those athletes have trained for four years of their life, massive sacrifices, both time, personal life, diets, you name it. Um, when they get to the Olympics, that, that overwhelming sensation of this is it, they get one chance at it. Um, so we, we wanna have them employing different relaxation techniques. Um, these can be a variety, so things like breathing techniques, um, progressive muscle relaxation where they tense a muscle and then release it and, and they work up, up up through their body making sure they go through each muscle. Um, meditation, it can be just listening to music, it could be sayings or mantras um, or different things like yoga, tai chi and, and again even visualization um, you know prior to the event and things like that. Um, finally we've got goal setting. Now we want to talk about smart goals here. We talk about um, specific, measurable, achievable, realistically and realistic and timely. And those need to be how we set strategies um, of goals so that the athlete can achieve them and it helps out with their training. All right, this brings us to the end of the focus question. Okay, we're up to focus question three. How can nutrition and recovery strategies affect performance? Now, there are three dot points in this focus question. Nutritional considerations, supplementation, and recovery strategies. Okay, so we're going to look at focus question three now, and the first dot point is nutritional considerations. Here are the sub points, there's three of them. We're gonna talk about pre-performance, including carbohydrate loading, and then we're going to talk about during performance, and finally, post-performance. So <clears throat> before, during, and after. So let's focus on pre-performance to start with. This includes carb loading. Okay, so when we're talking about pre-performance, there's a couple of things that we want to do um, prior to an event. This is generally one to four hours prior to the competition, and it's gonna we're gonna aim to achieve several different things. A, we don't want the athlete to feel hungry. We wanna make sure that our athlete is well hydrated. 
We want to ensure that the muscle glycogen stores are ready and full and so they're able to be tapped into during the event for fuel. We want to make sure that the liver glycogen content has been restored, um, especially if an event is in the morning as um, the stores are depleted during sleep or the night. And it's also going to help out with the psychological preparation. So I know some people have special meals that they'll eat before they um, participate in this sport. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail here, but realistically, let's um, think about, you know, three to four hours prior to performance. It can be a range of things that we can eat. Um, you know, we don't want to have real big, full sort of, you know, heavy uh, meals, but things like cereal and low-fat milk, fruit salad, low-fat yogurt, baked beans on toast, um, some pasta with tomato sauce. So you can see it's not super filling stuff, but it's going to be very high in the carbohydrate content to provide that energy. And we'll discuss carb loading in a moment. Um, an hour or two before the performance, we're probably wanting to start thinking about like um, less sort of major foods. So probably like fresh fruit, energy bars, cereal bars, um, sports drinks, uh, maybe a, a protein shake, um, cereal with low fat milk. So you can see the things that can be broken down and absorbed pretty quickly because we don't want the athlete feeling full as they participate. And within an hour of performance, um, we're going to look at things just like fruit, fruit or vegetable juice, um, maybe some fresh fruit, cordial sports drinks, energy bars, very, very light sort of things. Now, um, we mentioned carbohydrate loading. Now, what does that mean? Carbohydrate loading talks about um, maximizing the muscle glycogen stores. So remember our carbohydrates are broken down into glucose. Glucose is then, excess glucose is stored as glycogen in the muscles in the liver. Um, and so this is what we really want to do. Um, Essentially, an athlete should taper their exercise before a major event, about 72 hours prior. And during this time, um, we want to have a lot of carbohydrates, so our meals, um, high levels of um, carbohydrates, so dense carbohydrates. Um, and this is essentially how we can really focus on ensuring that we maximize carb loading to take place. And what that does is it just means that there's glycogen stores that we can access as we participate. So it's important to understand that. Um, now, for, for non-endurance events, um, to do this, we really wanna make sure that at least the 24 hours of rest from training or activity before um, we, we participate in, in our activity. And we're going to want at least seven to 10 grams per kilo of body mass per day in the 72 hours leading up. So for the three days leading up to that non-endurance event. Obviously, if we're going for an endurance event, we're going to probably want to um, increase sort of that amount. Um, we want to be, again, 72 hours, definitely taper off our training and a very high carb diet. We want to be looking at nine to 10 grams um, per kilo of body mass per day or at least 80 to 85% of the energy in the diet. So making sure that, you know, carbohydrates are the main. And by doing this, this should prepare us and increase our glycogen stores ready to go for when we, we need it. Okay, um, so we also gonna talk about um, during performance. So um, when we're participating during the activity, 
depending on the activity, depends on what we want to be eating or drinking. Now, um, generally, if you're, you know, we should, we encourage athletes to be drinking, you know, sort of 150, 250 mils every 15 minutes. Um, if, if the event is in short in duration, okay, um, we just get them to hydrate well before the event. Um, we've got to remember that fluid fluid that's taken in does take 20 to 30 minutes to be absorbed so that to be accessible to the body so um if it's under 30 minutes it's not really going to if your event's under 30 minutes and you're drinking just before or during it's really not going to do much for you um where it's 30 to 60 minutes you know we do want them drinking that 150 to 250 mils every 15 minutes ideally it's water or some sort of sports drink um you know to to always do that um Sports drinks are okay, hydrolyte, things that have some carbohydrate too, um, especially for the longer events because they're going to help replenish um, some of the energy stores that we might be able to tap into. When it comes to endurance events, we really obviously want to be well hydrated to start. We want to continue to replace fluid. Um, and as we are continuing to you know, do the activity, we really want to try and get carbohydrates. So if you're thinking of an ultra marathon or a marathon, you're going to need to be eating during those time periods or drinking at least. So um, some ideas here is we don't want things that are really filling. Um, you know, we, we want to avoid carbs that, um, you know, delay the stomach emptying. So an example, you know, we don't want high in fat or fiber. Um, we want to be looking for things such as bananas, um, you know, jelly beans, uh, energy sort of, not not like Red Bull, but energy drinks. So drinks that have a high carbohydrate content that's a sports drink, and they're gonna be taken during the event, right? So it's not like you're, you're gonna run and you wanna have a sit down big pasta meal because then you gotta to continue to run. So it is things that are high in um, glucose and that we can break down pretty easily and quickly and get that tapped in so that fuel is on hand for the athlete to use. Okay, and finally, we talk about post-performance. Now, this is where it's really important. Post-performance is about, um, you know, putting back what was depleted. So we want to restore the glycogen that has been taken out. Um, the more the glycogen was depleted, the, the faster the rate of the recovery. So we really want to essentially pump in those um, carbohydrates. Um, you really want to be doing this immediately or very close after to the finish of the activity or the sport that you're participating in. And by taking these, and so we, we talk about straight afterwards, we want to be looking at sort of 1.5 grams per carb uh, of carb per kilo of body mass straight after exercise. Um, and within the 24 hours, we want to be looking at 7 to 10 grams of carbohydrates per kilo of body mass um, in that 24 hour period. Um, and especially looking at foods with a high glycemic index, okay? So things that get broken down real quick and into our system to be used. Um, some examples of this, again, we talk about if we want things broken down quickly, um, making liquid, so milkshakes, fruit smoothies, um, liquid meal supplements, uh, things like that, again. Because um, the idea is we're replenishing what was depleted or taken out during that activity. Now, for, for fluids, we also want to make sure that, um, you know, a good way is having the athlete weigh themselves, keep track of how much fluid is consumed during. Um, now, the trick here is making sure that when the athlete calcul calculates that, so if they're 80 kilos, 
and they drank, um, you know, and then they jump on the scales afterwards and they lost two kilos um, and they're down to 78 kilos. We need to add two liters, or, or sorry, two kilos. So we want to put two, but whatever they drank as well, because they've lost that as well. So say they drank a liter during the activity, well, they have three kilos that they need to replenish, which equates to roughly three liters of fluids to get back into the system. Well, that talks about nutritional considerations and the three sub points for that part. Okay, we're gonna move on to the next part now, which is supplementation. This is the second dot point. Now there are four sub points to this. There's vitamins and minerals, protein, caffeine, and creatine products. So essentially, why do athletes supplement? It's to make up for a poor diet, um, to produce an effect on performance, so like a, a positive effect on that performance. Um, it might also meet excessive nutrient demands on, from, from um, like if they're a marathon runner and they have this really increased exercise load. And we've talked about Michael Phelps, um, who was a swimmer who used to eat something ridiculous amount of like 20 pizzas for breakfast because he was swimming like eight hours a day. His body was just burning that much fuel that he needed these high caloric foods just to keep him fueled, um, which is a pretty extreme example, but, but nonetheless. Um, so when we're talking about vitamins and minerals, they do multiple things for our body. Um, they activate enzymes so that we have energy production um, is efficient and, and that's also known as glycolysis. Um, the electrolytes that are found in minerals also help how the muscles contract. Um, iron is a vital form <coughs> is vital for the formation of hemoglobin, which helps transport oxygen around the body. Um, and they also help out with the immune system and things like that. Further to that, we can also look at um, vitamins and minerals from point of specific athletes. So if we look at female athletes, um, you know, they need to obviously have high levels of calcium and iron. Um, vegetarians also need to be looking at this as well, and they might need to supplement that because they're not getting certain things from their diet. And um, people that are really physically active, um, you know, when we sweat, we lose um, minerals such as magnesium, and, and this can also um, have a bit of an impact on performance through cramping and the like. And next sub point is protein. Um, you know, and so high protein is um, is suggested to build bigger muscles and help with recovery. There's not really a massive amount of scientific evidence to, to support that. Um, and it doesn't need to be massive amounts of protein. When we're talking about protein, it's about 2.2 grams per kilo of body mass. So that's not super massive amount when you consider eat what you eat in a 24 hour period. Um, again, this is not a great diet. Eating a high protein, low carb diet is not, a scent, not very good for an endurance athlete because they need glycogen, which is our carbohydrates. So um, it's important to understand what you are training for and what your what sport you're doing to um, to understand what your diet needs to consist of. Um, again, high protein diets it doesn't provide the fuel for for um, sports or activities that need a lot of fuel stores. Um, and realistically, protein and fats are, are basically useless in supplying energy and they're, they're the second and third string. We don't really want to be using them. Um, 
Protein is good for, you know, we say it's good for replenishing muscles and we know that's, you know, that, that's, that's true. You need protein or you won't be able to build muscle. Um, but again, it has to be, it's not as much as we think. And, you know, even though there's a lot of things out there, such as protein shakes and things like that, on a good diet, you're all, all positive. Okay, um, the next part is caffeine. So caffeine and um, essentially caffeine is a stimulant. Um, it can be really good. It can be something because it increases mental alertness and awareness and um, can be good for some sports depending on the sport. It also give you some jitters and things like that. So again, we go back to the archery example. There's a bit of a problem with archery. Um, so if you're doing archery, you're, um, you know, if you're shaking, it's going to have an impact on what you're doing. But caffeine does have some some positives to it, such as that alertness. Um, it's a stimulant, so people are you know excited about to play. Some downsides are it can obviously make you need to go to the toilet, a bit of diarrhea because it's a diuretic as well. And then finally, we have creatine. So creatine products, essentially, remember we talked about the ATP PC system and that creatine phosphate, taking it back so that that molecule, the ATP molecule becomes whole again. So um, look, again, creatine supplementation is taking that to assist in that process. Um, look, there's not great evidence to say that that works. Um, there's some side effects for doing it. Um, look, realistically, if you have an appropriate diet with everything, if you have a good, well-balanced diet, you shouldn't be lacking in many things at all. So supplementation is only needed if you are um, if you have a poor diet um, and you know you're not not maintaining what you eat for the activity that you're going to do very well. Okay, our final dot point is um, recovery strategies. And this looks at the sub points of physiological strategies. Example is the cool down and hydration. Neural strategies such as hydrotherapy and massage. Tissue damage strategies, e.g. cryotherapy. And finally, psychological strategies. Example is relaxation. Okay, so let's talk about the first sub point. Physiological strategies. Example is a cool down. Now, a cool down is basically, the main feature of a cool down is to lower the body's temperature, okay, and take it back down to pre-performance temperatures. Obviously, when we're doing activity, our muscles, as a byproduct of our muscle, we have heat, and this means that heat um, is needs to be getting rid of, essentially. Um, other parts of the cooldown is to remove lactic acid buildup um, and to, you know, improve the elasticity of those muscles as well. All this is to prevent soreness, stiffness, and injury to the muscle, um, and therefore the, the athlete can participate again as soon as possible. The other one for physiological strategies is hydration. Now, obviously, we have our bodies are made up. Um, a large amount of water and so hydrating our bodies is important so that our cellular function can be done properly. If we lose fluids through sweating, which occurs obviously during exercise, it needs to be replenished and I briefly spoke about before the way we calculate that. So if you're unsure, go back in this podcast and listen. Our second sub point is neural strategies and the examples here are hydrotherapy and massage. Hydrotherapy is obviously 
involves water. So when we're doing hydrotherapy, we're doing activities in the water um, in a weightless environment that makes it a little bit easier for the athlete to do. So we can work on range of motion, we can work, work on um, a little bit of resistance, especially for like running in a pool, for example. And then also we're looking at massage. Now massage is where um, a masseuse is obviously rubbing the area. Now there's different types of massage, but we're mainly talking about sports massage here. And predominantly the thoughts behind this is with that massage, it stimulates the muscles and it promotes and increases blood flow to the area. And with that fresh um, oxygenated blood, it's going to help in removing waste products and making sure that um, the, the athlete is in, in good condition. Um, there's also other benefits to massage, such as removing knots, um, and also the texture and um, of the actual muscle itself. It's a lot smoother with ongoing massage. All right, our third subpoint is tissue damage strategies. Example is cryotherapy. So cryotherapy is the use of cold. Um, now this can be done in multiple ways. It could be done with an ice bath. It could be done by applying ice to areas. And it also could be cryogenic chambers, um, which they get in. And obviously with that, they, um, they basically shoot into the actual chamber um, a, a liquid nitrogen which drastically drops the temperature and an athlete will only stay in there for a minute or two. Now the thoughts behind cryotherapy is that that cold sensation and stimulation will have um, the blood go back into sort of into the body into the internal organs um, you know, and we talk about vasodilation and vasoconstriction in year 11, but so vasoconstriction, that cold on the surface, having that sort of, you know, pulled in. And then from there, it's going to then um, go back to the normal temperature, which with that brings fresh oxygenated blood to the surface um, and right through those muscles again, which, which hopefully will take out waste products. Um, that oxygen gets those muscles back to their optimum levels. And finally, the, the final subpoint and end of this focus question is psychological strategies. Example here is relaxation. Um, so, you know, to recover, just to, to wind down, relax, um, you know, take a breather. We all sometimes, you know, especially in the heat of the moment and especially with activities, um, it can be stressful, especially as elite athletes. So we want to employ um, psychological strategies to make sure that our athletes are calm, relaxed, feeling good, um, and just chilling out after their sport with that amount of pressure as well that's on them. This brings us to the final um, part of the, this focus question. Um, and we'll be moving on to focus question for the final one now. Okay, welcome to focus question for the final focus question. This has four dot points to it. So the first one is stages of skill acquisition. The second dot point is characteristics of the learner. The third one is the learning environment. And the fourth one is assessment of skill and performance. Okay, let's talk about stages of skill acquisition. So we have three subpoints, and they're the three stages of skill acquisition. The first is cognitive, the second is associative, and the third is autonomous. And essentially, cognitive is the beginner or 
yeah, um, the first the person who's just taking up that that skill. All right, so they're basically at that stage when they're learning a new skill. Um, it, the, this is this stage is really characterised by the need of the athlete to understand what has to be done just to perform the skill. We're not talking about strategies, tactics, nothing like that, or even participating in a game. We're really just focusing on getting those little skills down pat, so that the um, because they're going to make a lot of errors. Um, the errors are going to be usually large. They're going to be re- frequent. They're going to happen a lot. They're going to need constant reinforcement and feedback um, during that. So demonstrations and instructions of the coach are really, really important here. Once an athlete starts to progress through that cognitive stage and they get a lot more comfortable with that skill, they they move on to um, all the holistic skills for the sport. They move on to what we call the associative stage. This is probably best known as like the practice stage. The athlete sort of can accurately perform the skill. Um, Their errors have become a lot less. And during this, we can start to increase the complexity of what they're practicing. So we can add things in like defenders, um, you know, um, just change how the activities are running to make it a bit more difficult, not just focusing on the skill. Um, Look, throughout this, our accuracy and consistency keeps increasing. Feedback is still really important to offer. Um, Extrinsic feedback will now start to combine with intrinsic feedback because that the athlete will start to know and feel what they're doing wrong. So they'll have an understanding. um, So they don't need as much Reliant, there's not as much reliance on um, that feedback from coaches, and especially about the performance. They'll know if they're doing it right or not. Um, and at least they'll have that understanding. And finally, the last stage here is our autonomous stage. This is where autonomous is just automatically. Um, the athlete really has, has got control over the skill. They can now start to think about things like strategies and tactics. Um, and when they're doing the skill, they're going to be more aware of people around them, um, defenders, where to move and things like that. Um, a lot of their knowledge now is going to come from their intrinsic. Um, so they're going to have an understanding of what they're doing. They're going to be able to correct errors. Um, so j- even during execution. So if they, you know, if you watch tennis, you'll see athletes that throw the ball up and before they sit during a serve and they'll stop themselves because they're, they're understanding where that ball is. It's not in the right position that they could fault. So they'll, they'll stop and then they'll start the process again. And this is known as the autonomous stage. Okay, that brings us to the end of stages of skill acquisition. Okay, the second dot point is characteristics of the learner. And here we're going to look at personality, heredity, confidence, prior experience, and ability. Okay, so firstly, personality. Okay, some people's personality really will impact their ability to learn. Okay, it might be someone that um, <clears throat> just doesn't like to talk. They might be um, they might be someone who is a very um, sort of intrinsic person. They don't like to they don't like to talk or be around people much as well. So that can play an impact. Um, they might be sorry an introvert as opposed to an ex, um, extrovert. Um, so their personality could equate to whether they want to be in a team sport or an isolated in a single sport. So there's different things 
that will really impact um, how they learn. They might not want to be in a team sport because they don't like doing things in front of other people because they're not very confident, etc. Um, the next one is hereditary, and this is where um, people and their genetics come into play. So you can, if you think about sports like volleyball and basketball, um, they're generally associated with really tall people. So if you look at net, even netball, netball, most players are over six foot. Basketball, they're definitely over six foot. Um, so if you're someone that has small genetics and you're going to be five foot, reality is you're not going to ever be a professional athlete in that sport. Um, so hereditary can play a, a big part in what sport you can actually do. Next one's confidence. Um, so we need an athlete to be confident in being to perform the activity or sport in front of others because there's going to be a crowd. Um, however, being overconfident is a disadvantage because um, getting feedback from coaches and clashing with the, the coaching staff can be a big problem. Um, so confidence can both be a, a positive thing because we want athletes to be confident, but overconfident creates some difficulties as well. And then if someone is not confident at all, that's going to cause a lot of stress and anxiety and pressure and the performance is going to be hindered as well. Next one is prior experience. This is where an athlete's bringing, they might have been playing a sport for multiple years and they come in under new coaching and the coaching staff have a different way of operating or different way of doing things. This can be a positive and a negative because with that prior experience, it might be some really good stuff that they bring to the table. But it also could be that they don't want to relinquish or let go of bad habits. So it can be a positive and negative depending on the athlete's attitude to what is expected from the coaching staff and um, what changes need to be made. And finally, there's ability. Now, ability is whether, you know, it doesn't matter how hard, sometimes people just are not very good at something. Um, and they might train really, really hard, um, but they'll never be at that elite level. So um, a really Really good example would be 100 meter sprinters. Um, if you if you watch the Olympics this year, you would have seen that we had um, a young bloke called Browning um, that he he ran in the 100 meters and and realistically Australia is not known for our 100 meter sprinters because we just don't have the ability. Whether that um, comes down to our genetics or whatever it might be, but really you can count on one hand the um, 100 meter sprinters that have made a final um, in the Olympics from Australia. So. Um, Sometimes, even though we've got a lot of people that do it, a lot of people that train really hard, they just they haven't got the ability to get to that top level. So that can also impact the ability to learn. Also, if someone thinks they're a lot better than they are, they're less likely to take advice, and and this causes an issue. And we see this a lot too, with especially um, players of a, a lower sort of um, more in that associative sort of stage, but they think that they're at that autonomous stage and they're very very good. Okay, so we're going to now look at the learning environment. And the first sub point for this is nature of the skill. Uh, this is looking at open, closed, gross, fine, discrete, serial, continuous, self-paced, and external paced. And I'm gonna give you the definitions for each one. So when we talk about open, um, this is basically where the environment, um, so skills that are taking place in an environment that is constantly changing. So if you think about surfing is a good example because it's outdoors, it requires waves, wind, sun, rain, etc. 
Closed is the opposite of this, and that's where it takes place in an environment that is going to stay the same. So an indoor stadium or a basketball stadium, a basketball court indoor in that indoor stadium. Um, so it's not going to be impacted by rain, wind, etc. <clears throat> we then have gross. Our gross motor skills, they're large muscles, okay? So their skills characterized by the larger muscles doing the activity. And then the opposite of that is our fine motor, and this is where the skills are very small. Um, so they're using small muscles of the body. Um, so I always like to think of small muscles, like if you guys are writing with your pen, that's small muscles that are moving. Our next one is a discrete skill. Now, um, a discrete skill is um, basically one that um, it's very, it has a a definite starting point and a finish point, and it's generally very short. Um, discrete skills then make up serial. So if you have multiple discrete skills, a combination of them is actually a serial skill. And then we have the continuous skill, and that's where there is no definitive start or end point. It's just constant. Now, the final two are self-paced, and this is where the skill is all about the timing. The timing is completely controlled by the athlete. And then we have externally paced, where the athlete does not have control over the timing. Our next sub point is the performance elements. This includes decision making, strategic and tactical development. So when we talk about decision making, this is where an athlete has, basically they've got a pretty good understanding of all the skills involved in the sport, but now we're gonna put them into play, especially in a team environment. So when we're talking about decision making, this is where an athlete has to make a decision if, a, if they're a defender in soccer and a person is dribbling the ball towards the goal and there's a person who they're marking um, is on the left-hand side and the person with the ball is on the right-hand side, they've gotta make a decision whether they go towards the person with the ball or they continue to back off and stay with the person they're supposed to mark. So this is, is known as what decision is going to be made in that circumstance. Um, and, and this can be, this is where it also comes down to practice and experience and also what the coach wants them to do. Then we have strategic and tactical development. So this is where strategy comes into play in all sports. Now, if you had a, a soccer team and you had a, you were coming up against a team that's really short and you had players that were all very tall, a good strategy would be probably to get the ball to the wingers and take it down and then have them crossing it over for people to head the ball because that height advantage is going to play to your, to play your strengths. That's a strategy and that's basically what we need to do here. In We're looking at the team, what is what are, what is what are they strong at and what are they weak at and we're going to try and exploit that weakness. And basically that is also tactical development, understanding what we're trying to achieve. So rugby league is a really good one, or Oztag is a really good one for this, that the ball player should always run in between two players. They want to run at that hole. And the reason they want to do that is because they essentially want to attract both of them to try and tackle or tag them. And by doing this, that's going to have a bit of an overflow and create gaps or holes for the next person out. So they're basically going to be a sacrificial lamb, go towards that, attract people to create space for somebody else to hopefully get through. All right, that's the performance element.
final sub-point is feedback. Um, so let's start with external feedback. External feedback is, is basically stimuli that comes from outside the body, generally from maybe another person, coach, teammate, but it can be others. So it could be the crowd, it could be another player that you're playing against. Um, it could be even watching um, the, the ball you've kicked go into the soccer goal. Um, this is basically external feedback, so it's coming from outside the body. Then we then also have internal feedback, and this is where the messages are received within the body. Um, it can, it, it's relying on the senses, so um, touch, feel, all those different sort of things. Um, and when you're when you're like going for a run, you might or going to kick a ball, um, you might be able to know that you're too far from the ball just by the way your legs moving through the air. Or when you release the ball, um, if you're shooting a basketball, you know that it's not going to go in because you didn't put it up high enough, etc. Right, the next one is concurrent feedback, and this is while the performance is still happening. So you're getting this during that performance while it's still going on. Um, we've used the example previously of um, you know gymnastics and diving, and and you can also think about like aerial skiers in the Winter Olympics. So they come they come down the mountain at great speeds, hit the ramp, and then they'll um, be in the be up in the air, and they'll have that coach whistling to tell them that's where they should come out of their twists or somersaults um, to get ready to land. Um, concurrent feedback, you know, really difficult for probably beginners because they're, you know, they're, they're really focused on trying, just trying to do the skill, um, not get get feedback straight away while that, that's going to overload the individual. We then have delayed feedback and it's exactly as it sounds, delayed, it's after the actual performance has been completed. So this could be, um, this could be a couple of different ways, it could be, um, sitting down with the coach and, and watching a, a game um, and him having feedback in regards to you missing tackles or you know being in the wrong position and what's going on with strategy and tactics. We then have knowledge of results. Now this is where you know if um, you, you know if you shoot for a basketball and you miss or you know you, you're throwing a, um, you're playing darts and you're throwing and you're missing the bullseye by two centimeters. You know that that's occurring because that's the, the result has occurred and that's the information that you're getting back. And finally, we have knowledge of performance. Now, knowledge of performance refers to how the skill is executed. We just sort of talked about throwing that basketball and not having it up high enough and feeling that it wasn't going to go in. Um, so that's the same thing that athlete Athletes, especially good athletes, will generally know what's going to occur before it even occurs. So if they're hitting a ball, they know that it's not going to go. In tennis, they hit the ball, they know it's not going to go in because they haven't hit it properly. All right, that brings us to the final part for this dot point. Okay, we're going to look at the dot point now of assessment of skill and performance, and it has four subpoints. The first is characteristics of skilled performers. So, example here is going to be kinesthetic sense, anticipation, consistency, and technique. So, kinesthetic sense is the knowledge and understanding of how the body's moving, and if they're, if they're, as I said before, with tennis as the, um, as the example, and the tennis serve. If you watch tennis, you'll see a lot of the times that a tennis player will go to serve, they'll throw the ball up, and they won't hit the ball because they feel that it's in the wrong sense. They, that it's not in the right position for them to make a successful serve, so they stop. Generally, will apologise to their opponent, but that's an example of kinesthetic sense. They know something's gone wrong and it's not in the right position. 
We then can talk about anticipation. Anticipation, like the video that we watched with uh, Cristiano Ronaldo heading a ball into the goal in the dark, because he anticipated where that ball was going to be on that kick. So we've seen the person kick the ball and then watching its flight path, he was able to successfully anticipate where it was gonna be, get to that position and be able to score. We then have consistency. Consistency is uh, definitely something that an autonomous, skilled performer has, all right? And they're able to, basically, if they were hitting a, a golf ball, they generally know what driver or what size club, how far it will go, and they can do that on a regular basis. They'll always hit roughly around the, you know, six iron might be 180 metres, and they consistently will hit that 180 metres, and that's how they know how to pick what club to play, um, use when they're playing golf. And finally, for this um, this sub point is the technique. Technique's really, really important because um, if your technique is not good, it can cause issues in how you're executing the skill or what you're achieving in that sport. Um, technique is again really really important so we can talk about whether it be 100 meter sprinters or swimmers the technique is very very important and it can have a greater impact so when you look at swimmers swimmers um, are very good at, with buoyancy they keep a very slim line approach to their body they rotate their shoulders really well they have relaxed hands now, if you were to do it and you were to keep your fingers pushed together, that's extra energy that you're using. It's harder to push through the water. Um, there's all these things. Now, that technique is going to make you a bit slower, and that's what we don't want, obviously, in swimming. All right, that brings us to the end of that sub point. Okay, our, next, our second sub-point is objective and subjective performance measures. A subjective measure is comes from a person's opinion on how, how well a skill was performed. An example of this was um, you know, a coach or parent saying that was a great throw, um, or a judge giving a, a diver nine out of 10 based on what they're doing. Um, this is where judges might see it differently. Um, you can see there's some issues in sports like boxing and mixed martial arts where a lot of judges won't score the same, and that's because they're subjective measures. It's up to the individual to put, um, to, you know, on, on what they interpret or what they witness or what they see and how they individually score it. Objective measures are the are the opposite. There's a prescription to it. So um, basically, an objection measure. If you think about running 100 meters, you know the person who won the race. You know the time that they ran it in, and we know that they were the fastest time because we compare to all the other times. So it's not subjective. It doesn't go, oh, that person was the quickest. It's actually going to go on the fastest time that got through. Our third sub point is validity and reliability of tests. Now for any skill um, related test, it really needs to both be valid and it needs to be reliable. So reliability first, let's focus on that. It needs to be able to be, it means the test needs to be able to be done and repeated in similar conditions with similar or consistent results. Um, now, this is where sometimes it gets difficult and it needs to be thought about where this is occurring. So if you're doing a 20 meter sprint and you're doing it indoors, you don't have to worry about wind. 
So if you do 20 metres, 20 metres, 20 metres, um, three, you should run roughly about the same because there's not things that are impacting it. However, you know, that, that would be a reliable test. However, if you, you just stepped it out instead of measuring the 20 metres and you sort of were guessing and each time then you'd guess where the next part was and you stepped it out again, um, it could differ and it could then change the results. Um, validity of it is, well, how valid is that? So if we're, if we're say, doing bench presses as a weight thing for a soccer player, it's, it's pretty irrelevant, to be honest. There's no need to, there's no need to um, have a soccer player having really a lot of upper body strength because the sport doesn't require that. So valid tests need to be things that really are essential to that sport as well. The last sub point here is prescribed, uh, sorry, personal versus prescribed judging criteria. So when we talk about prescribed, that is where a, an organisation or um, will give will give basically the, the criteria around assessment. So if you think about gymnastics, um, there is a you know there is a gymnastics um, point sort of point system that is overseen by us. The, you know, the, the governing Australian body for gymnastics. So the, the per, people scoring, if a fault occurs, they take, say, a point off. They can't just go, oh, I mean, I, I think I'll take three points off for that person and one point for the other. Because it's prescribed, they know they can only take one point off. Personal criteria, on the other hand, there isn't a, that prescribed thing. So this could be a coach picking a, a, picking a team. So each coach might value different things in players. So they're watching for something else and that becomes the personal criteria um, in regards to the prescribed. Thank you.